on Audio, the podcast for writers and all who are interested in books, literature and the printed word. Write on Audio is the weekly companion podcast of Write On Magazine and the Write On suite of publications from pen to print. Subscribe by searching pen to print in your favourite podcast app to have new editions delivered to you each week. This is a Write On Audio showcase. This month's showcase is selected by Charlotte Maddox. Charlotte is the prize manager at the Wilbur and Niso Smith Foundation, a literature and literacy charity championing adventure as a genre. The foundation runs the Wilbur Smith Adventure Writing Prize and supports new writers as well as offering opportunities for children and young people. Hello, I'm Charlotte and I had the pleasure of curating this week's Write On Showcase. As prize manager at the Wilbur and Niso Smith Foundation, I work to champion adventure fiction which is why I was so excited about this month's theme of reality and perceptions. Adventure is a genre that typically revolves around characters embarking on daring journeys or quests, sometimes pushing the boundaries of reality as they encounter extraordinary challenges and situations. Within this genre, reality and perception frequently intertwine, leading characters and readers alike to question what is true and what is possible. The poem, short story and extract that you will hear in this podcast explore the duality of these themes and present the question, are our perceptions a result of reality or are reality a result of perceptions? I hope you enjoy listening. The first piece is a short story from Matthew DePauli, the author of Kill Stambul and Holiday, winner of the Foundation's 2017 New Voices Award. Matthew explores themes of change and uncertainty, dancing in that ambiguous place between what is real and what is perceived. This piece demonstrates the complex interplay between external events and internal perceptions through the prism of memory and nostalgia. The reader is Chris Gregory. Nobody move. Nobody panic. That's the exact thing people say before everyone panics. I was failing at this. You can move. Daddy, what's wrong? My five-year-old picked her head up from her tablet and looked at me the way airplane passengers look at a dead pilot. Nothing, I said. You can move. That's weird. You're being weird. I'm being normal. You're being weird. She shrugged and went back to her budget CGI Disney show. The house was cooler than usual, but I didn't have the energy to turn up the heat. The weather had been so warm lately, I hadn't changed over the boiler. None of this mattered at the moment. The only thing that mattered now was keeping Bunny safe. Bun, go up to your room and get in bed. I'm in the middle of Princess Pickle Time. Normally Princess Pickle Time took precedence over all else. Bun, do this for me. Outside, the webbed ice climbed the sliding doors and wedged small cracks in the kitchen window. The wind made small wolf-like calls. No, she said forcefully. I picked up her wriggling body. She felt like asparagus sprigs that could fight back. I carried her, still thrashing up the stairs. 
I plopped her floppy limbs on the bed, and she curled up in some ancient little girl defence mechanism, stronger than ramparts. I wish Mum was here. Mum wouldn't do this. She started to cry, which was a weakness of mine. I couldn't have this. I sighed. You know why Mum can't be here. No? Say it. Because she loves her new boyfriend Tibor more than us. Yes, good. At least my teachings had stuck with her. She'd need that armour plating now. I thought of her mum, my wife, not even fully not my wife yet, and where she might be in this moment. Was she laughing? Did he make her chortle the same way so that the little flaps of her arm that she didn't like shook? Did he take her hair and move it off her lips in the morning? What should I do? I'm bored said Bunny. I looked around the room. The windows filled up red and dark with ashen clouds like oil slicks, and the room vibrated. In the corner, her mother kept an old dollhouse she'd once played with as a child. In each room, she'd set a different scene. A solarium of tiny high-heeled shoes, an attic of rosaries where all the dolls prayed, a small badminton court in the living room, and a bathroom where everyone ate a petite pheasant. These were the absurdities of my wife, who was not my wife. I wondered if Tibor knew of her doll's house, and would some day come to take it from us, or maybe no one would take anything from anyone because there wasn't anything left to be taken. Bun crawled down from her bed and onto the mauve carpeting where her peeled leggings dragged sparks along the coils. Outside, strange licorice rain began to smack the windows, trailing onyx ski paths into the glass and soil and root. How do you feel? I asked. Really, I was asking myself. I saw myself mirrored in her, only greyer, flatter. I want to look, she said. Look into the doll's house instead. A solarium of pronged sandals a mosque in the attic, a pickleball court kitchen, a bedroom where everyone drank homemade wine that just tasted like grape juice. Perhaps this was our home now, and the outside world would never come crashing in on us. The room flowed red with heat. The stars flew by our window, and I wrapped Bun up like knuckles around a coffee mug and held on to her because she was the only thing that hadn't changed. And I didn't want to change either. We peered deep into the doll's house as my wife, who was not my wife, and Tibor said goodbye, their faces the colour of grape juice. That was nice of him. I don't think I would have done the same. Maybe he wasn't that bad a guy. Bun reached out into the next day, and we saw the future together, I was comforted, doughy in the heat, and joyful until the moment I was no longer in it. Charlotte's next selection is a poem by Latha Rajasekhar, which highlights the contrast between the external and internal. It ultimately underscores the idea that authenticity and self-assuredness, grounded in reality, can lead to a deeper and more lasting sense of happiness, challenging the superficial aspects of perception. This piece is read by Sally Walker-Taylor. 
Break all eye contacts you want. Evade all acknowledgements you wish. Throw as many fake smiles as you please. Live in false pretense all your life. Accuse me of what you fancy. All I have to say is, suit yourself. My love is nothing new. My intention's been true. Sans eye contact, I shall not perish. Sans acknowledgement, I shall not wither. I live a happy life, both in your thoughts and in reality. Charlotte's final selection is by Joe Totten, who was one of the winners of the 2022 New Voices Award, which supports emerging writers, offering a year of mentorship and editorial guidance from an industry expert. This extract is the opening to the novel Joe has been working on this last year, called Utopia, Texas. It explores the ways in which our individual perceptions of reality are shaped by personal experience, biases, and resistance to change highlighting the tension between differing perspectives of reality within a family. The reader is Chris Gregory. Utopia, Texas. He stood in the kitchen, hands on hips, back straight, looking out at the lawn I'd forgotten to mow. His posture suggested he was about to receive an order, or give one. My father always seemed to be at attention, which made sense after 25 years in the army. You're driving Rue to Texas, he said. She wants to go to a funeral. I nodded and didn't ask who died. Not that I wasn't interested. I just didn't want to prolong our conversation any longer than necessary. You'll leave tomorrow after school, he said, and walked out of the kitchen. Her full name was LaRue Audrey Birdwell. Rue to just about everyone. No one ever called her grandmother. She hated the word. There's nothing grand about getting old, she said. I barely knew my grandfather, her husband of more than 30 years. Rue almost never talked about Calvin. There's only one photo in her home. A small picture frame next to her bed. Calvin is standing up in a rowboat, waving his hat at the camera. Rue is seated at the oars, rowing. She doesn't look happy. According to my father, Calvin was a man of unchangeable habits. He wanted his dinner on the table every evening at six sharp, his son out of sight and his wife quiet. That last one was impossible for Rue, and the marriage became a battle. Everyone was forced to pick a side. My dad chose Rue and... Now I'm stuck with her. I rode my bike over to Rue's house. Her 1963 Eldorado Cadillac was sitting in her carport, covered in dust. Despite the numerous dents in the side panels and the thick dust, this was a beautiful car, baby blue with white leather interior. I could lay down in the back seat and my head and feet wouldn't touch either door. Sharp, chrome-trimmed tail fins sweeping back from the rear window made the car look like it was about to go airborne. The steering wheel, as big as a manhole cover, there was enough metal on that Cadillac for two small cars. The last time she'd been at the wheel, she'd wiped out a few trash cans coming out of the church parking lot, and my old man had taken the keys off her. This time of day, 
She'd be in front of the TV watching her soaps with the volume up so loud the dishes rattled. I knocked and waited. The door opened as far as the chain would allow. The old lady's face floated into view. It's Jim, I said. I could hear her swearing at the chain, trying to get it loose, and then the door swung wide. Have you got the keys, boy? I showed her the keys. Dad says we'll leave tomorrow, after I get home from school. She shook her head. I want to get an early start. We've got a ways to go. I've got school tomorrow, Rue. School? Don't bother, it's not doing you any good. It was still dark when the phone rang the next morning. My room was closest to the kitchen where the phone hung on the wall, so it was assumed by my family that I would answer it. I walked to the kitchen and picked up the receiver. We're wasting daylight, boy, let's go. We took the interstate heading west toward Atlanta. In the rush to get out of the house, I'd forgotten to bring a road map. We don't need a map, Rue said. I know where I'm going. Northern Georgia is a monotonous landscape. Thick stands of pine trees and wide fields of cotton behind miles of wire fences. I turned on the radio. The supreme singing Love Child came on. Rue listened for a while and then snapped off the radio. Hey, I was listening to that. I'm not listening to those people screaming at me. I looked at her. What do you mean by those people? She turned her head and stared out the window. What word do we use nowadays? Negro? Coloured? Black or African American? I've been calling them something else my whole life. I'm not changing now. Rue, that word is offensive. Please don't use it. Do you know what offends me, smart guy? When those people burn down their own homes, then expect the government to bail them out. What are you talking about? She turned to look at me. Rue wore thick bifocals that made her eyes appear oddly large. I was struck by lightning when I was a child, she said, trying to change the subject. That explains a lot, I thought. Thank you to Charlotte Maddox for selecting our October showcase. We'll share details of the pieces you heard and links so you can find out more about the Wilbur and Niso Smith Foundation in our show notes. Join us next week for an interview with Iranian writer and rights activist, Rui Shafi. We're always delighted to read your contributions, so if you'd like to see your words in Write On or hear them on this podcast, please get in touch. We'll share this link and all others mentioned in today's podcast as part of our show notes. I've been Tiffany Clare, and you've been listening to Write On Audio. Write On Audio is produced by Chris Gregory, and it's an alternative stories production for pen to print. This podcast is supported using public funding by Arts Council England.